Now, for the rest of the time tonight, I, I want to talk a little bit about, very practically, how do we know this is happening? Because the process of discipleship, honestly, we can talk about it, and it can be this cool ideal, and it can be this cool vision we have, but we all know, like, the biggest challenge about lead groups is making sure the house is clean, we've got some snacks on the table, we got the email out, and everybody knows where we're meeting and what we're studying, and we just hope that they read their lesson, right? I mean, making disciples on Tuesday night is a lot of times the last thing on our brain, or at least it is on mine. I'm way more concerned about how much work I got to do to get my house clean when I get home. So sometimes discipleship gets lost in, in the trees, you know? Um, and, uh, and so I want to talk a little bit about how do we make sure that discipleship is happening? What are the markers? What are the clues? What are the things that we can look for? Um, I think one of the ways that the Bible has become a little bit deceptive is that we can read it so quickly. Uh, we read it so quickly that we miss the drama and the mystery and the intrigue and sometimes the comedy of what's happening. And, and it happens so fast that sometimes we miss how slow things actually are in the middle. For instance, we can jump very quickly from the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai to the walls of Jericho falling, and we miss the 40 years of wandering and waiting that happened between those two things. We, we go from the ascension of Jesus to the giving of the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost, and we miss the 10 days of uncertainty and waiting and praying between those two events. We move very quickly from Paul being knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus to Paul going on his first missionary journey, and we miss the three years that he spends in Arabia praying and being transformed by God. We, we move from, from Paul and Silas leaving Antioch to go on their second missionary journey to revival breaking out and a church being planted in Philippi, and we miss the 450 miles they walked between those two things because we can just read it all so quickly. And what we miss are the steps in between. It's like we read the Bible as though it's a series of Facebook status updates. You know? But we miss the steps that come in between. And so I think a lot of times in the church when we think discipleship, we think, oh, we know that's happened when somebody in our group gets baptized. When somebody in our group has a dramatic encounter with the Holy Spirit. When someone in our group goes on a mission trip. When someone in our group decides they want to go into ministry. And we look for the big status updates, but it's really the steps in the middle that are the most important things to pay attention to. Uh, my husband and I both love to hike, and uh, he's originally from Oregon, so every time we go, uh, go his way uh, home, we do a lot of hiking. In fact, uh, just the other day, um, Ryan bought, uh, my, my daughter Sawyer is gonna be one in two weeks, and Ryan bought her a birthday present which is a hiking backpack for him that she can sit in. So I'm not sure if it's a birthday present for her or for him, but either way, we're ready to hike as a family. But a couple of years ago, we were in Oregon, and there was a new trail that Ryan's dad was really excited for us to hike. It was called, excuse me, but Damnation Creek Trail. And uh, it's worth every bit of its title. Um, what's really cool about the trail is that you hike, you start in the redwood forest in a mountainous area, and by the time you finish, you're at the coast, the Oregon coast, sand, the ocean. And the beginning of the trail, or, or the, the, um, the first leg, um, you're going straight down. 
I mean, it's just straight down from this rocky mountainous area as you're descending to the coast. It's a beautiful hike, but with every step forward, I thought, I've got to come back up. <laughs> and you know, most trails, or at least most trails around here, you're, you're going up first to the overlook, and then you get to come down. So if you're halfway up and you're done, you can just turn around and go back. And with every step I'm taking down, I'm thinking, I gotta come back up. And I can't just stop, like I'm gonna have to make it back up. And, um, and so then we get down there and then we're running on the beach, we're actually playing baseball on the beach and I'm thinking, I'm not gonna make it back up. And the only thing that gave me hope is that um, my brother-in-law, who at the time was the laziest teenager I've ever met, um, my hope was if Josh can get back up, I can get back up. And uh, as we were climbing back up Damnation Creek Trail to the, to the trailhead, the way I got back up was just one step at a time. Just one foot in front of the other. Just concentrating on that next step. And that's what discipleship is about. It's just looking at the next step. And so I want to talk about eight steps that as small group leaders, we can look for, we can encourage the steps that, that help us know discipleship is happening. The first one is this. We know that discipleship is happening when the people in our groups move from consumers to contributors. This is transformation marker number one. When people in our groups move from being consumers to contributors. When they stop coming to group for what they can get out of it, they start coming to group for what they can bring to it. When they stop coming to group primarily looking for something to learn and primarily something to share. When they look at group, when they, when they move from seeing group as something that serves their needs to seeing group as something that they're a part of the body and the body requires that all of the parts come together. When, when, when you're a consumer, you're looking primarily to complete a task. Um, a contributor is, is a shareholder in the vision. A, a consumer will consider, is it worthwhile to go to group tonight or not? And a contributor will realize that participating in the group is what makes the group worthwhile. Another way of thinking about it is it, it's the move um, that happens in people's minds from going to group to being a group. Moving from consumer to contributor. Now, granted, all of us went to group at some point for the first time as a consumer. We went there to have a need met because we wanted to find community, because we wanted to learn something. There's nothing wrong with people coming to groups as consumers. There's nothing wrong with people signing up to be a part of a group with a consumer mentality. But we know that transformation is happening when steps are being made from a consumer mindset to a contributor mindset. Um, some of the ways we know this is happening, when somebody speaks up for the first time to share, they're moving from consumer to contributor. I mean, little steps. I want to encourage us to celebrate those little steps. When somebody goes the extra mile, they don't just sign up to bring snacks once, they sign up to bring them for the month, or they just offer to handle them. Um, when somebody does the little things like they're the big things and don't make a big deal about it, when somebody shows up just a little bit early, stays a little bit late to help set up, to help clean up, I 
when, when people go from um, just wanting to hang out for a couple hours once a week to wanting to hang out after group time. They're moving from being consumers to contributors. Um, this is a question of motivation. It's a marker of motivation is what is encouraging people to be a part of this group? We're a body of Christ. I, I love the body of Christ. I love talking about the body of Christ. Um, we all have a part to play. One of the things that, that my boss and my pastor said one time is, you know, you, you may not think that you need the church, but the church needs you. Because you're a part of the body of Christ, and when you are missing, part of the body is missing. And if people in our groups understand that they're a part of the body, it moves us from consumer to contributor. Uh, several years ago, I was, I was leading an organization, a, a student organization at Louisiana State University, and, and I was teaching on the importance of the body of Christ. And I was talking about the importance of the head and the heart and the hands and the feet. And, uh, and I was going on and on and, you know, about how important the body of Christ is and encouraging people. Figure out what part you play and play it well. And uh, this freshman came up to me at the end and, and she said, Heather, I really I enjoyed your talk. Um, I, I want to believe that's true. I want to believe I'm part of the body of Christ, but I think maybe I'm just not a very important part of the body. Like I might just be a nose hair or something. <laughs> now I was, I was a graduate student in biological engineering. So when she said this, I got so excited. I said, do you know what the nose hairs do? I said, you were on the front lines of defense for the entire body. You were part of the body's natural filtration system. And I started going on and on for like 10 minutes about the importance of the role she played. And she kind of just was looking at me like, you're in the headlights. I was like, you be the best nose hair you can possibly be because you have no idea how important your role is. I'm just really glad she didn't say she thought she might be an appendix or something because I don't know what I would have done with that one. <laughs> be the best nose hair you can be. Encourage group members to be the best nose hair they can be if that's the only role they think they play because there is no role too small. There is no role insignificant. And when people in your group begin to see that they move from consumers to contributors, you know something is happening in your group. And look for the small things. They speak up. They participate. They bring something to it. They contribute. The second marker. When people move from facts to opinions to passions. At some point in the early stages of a group, most of the conversation revolves around facts. Um, in the conversation, you know, what do you do? Where do you live? Where do you work? When we're talking about whatever we're talking about in our group setting, what did we read? What did it say? And then at some point, the conversation moves a little bit deeper to opinions. What do you think about what we read? What do you think about what we're praying for? What do you think about what's going on in the world? And in that conversation shift, there's a shift in the level of community. Because to move from talking about facts to moving to talking about opinions takes a level of listening. It takes a level of vulnerability. It takes a level of trust. 
It takes a level of affinity and understanding. And then at some point, the conversation shifts even further than that. It's not just, what did we read? And it's not just, well, what do you think about it? Then it becomes, how do you feel about it? And when you move to that, how do you feel about it? When you move to the place of passion, when you move to the place of what stirs your heart, what makes you angry, what makes you sad, what makes you super excited, you've reached a new level of community. You've reached a new level of conversation. This is a question of our relationship to one another. Uh, we have a, a small group at NCC um, for Capitol Hill staffers. And the group is uh, comprised of people on both sides of the aisle and everything in between and everything on the other side. <laughs> and four years ago, in the midst of a very contentious presidential debate, I assumed that group would be ready to multiply. This is a good time to split. You know, elephants on one side, donkeys on the other, we'll keep it all clean. Um, but that group actually decided they wanted to stay together. They watched all four presidential debates, or three presidential debates together. They prayed for one another, realizing that the answers to the prayers they were praying could compromise or jeopardize their own political aspirations. And one of the leaders of that group said to me, you know, what I realized is that if I could genuinely love and pray for someone on the other side of the aisle, it's 7 a.m. at a coffee house. Why does that have to change when I walk through the doors of the halls of Congress two hours later? That's a group that has moved from fact to opinion to passion. And they're finding that there is something in Christ that transcends even the vocation that they have. When your group begins to move from talking about facts to talking about to talking about passion. It's a marker that transformation is happening. Number three, a transformation marker is when we move from learning about the Bible to living out the Bible. When it moves from answers in workbooks and, and answers in blanks to something that becomes a part of our everyday walking around lives, we know we're making disciples. Um, when the Bible isn't just a textbook that we study, but a playbook that we make decisions by, the playbook that we live by, we know that disciples are being made. When people begin to walk in the character and the ways and the mission of Jesus, we know that disciples are being made. When conversations about grace and truth and the work of Christ is happening around us, we know disciples are being made. I think some practical examples when you're in group talking about the Bible and people are bringing real life stories into that, you know they're learning to live out the Bible and not just learn the Bible. And then conversely, when they're having real life conversations, everyday conversations, and they're bringing in the things that they're learning about the truth of God and his ways, we know that they're living out the Bible. I had a leader a few years ago that actually wanted to experiment with a group. They said, you know what, we've got a lot of Bible study groups. What if we started a Bible doing group? Where basically we just read, and whenever we come to something that's a command or a point of obedience, 
we stop reading and we go out and do it. That's a group that's moving to a place of not just learning about the Bible, but living out the Bible. Um, this marker has to do with our relationship to the Word of God. And is it something that's just going to live up here, or is it something that's going to be, um, we immerse our entire life in, and it saturates everything that we do? When people in your group move from learning about the Bible to living out the Bible, you know discipleship is happening. Fourth learner. We know that disciples are being made when we stop praying for stupid stuff and start praying for real stuff. Now, leaders, I know you know what I'm talking about. I think it's just a, a matter of when we first come into group with one another, we don't know what the boundaries are. We're not quite ready to take that mask off yet, and we spend a lot of time praying for some stupid stuff. Um, in fact, a lot of times prayer is kind of the add-on to the group, or the afterthought to the group. One thing you might want to consider doing, depending on where your group is at, is just make prayer the first thing you do when you come together. Give it a central place in the group experience. Now, this requires a level of vulnerability. It requires a level of um, going a little bit deeper with each other. One of the questions I asked my group one time is, if you, were, if you had the opportunity to pray one prayer this week, one, that you knew with 100% certainty God would answer, what would it be? And that changed the conversation. Because that moves us a little bit from praying for the safe stuff to praying for the real stuff, for the gut-level stuff. Um, just some things practically to look for. When somebody prays for the first time out loud in your group, that's a discipleship moment. That's a mark of transformation. That's a step. They're moving. When somebody shares a personal prayer request, personal, not a prayer request about their neighbor's dog, not a prayer request about their Aunt Susie's friends, cousins, puppy. <laughs> a personal request, something that is out of their gut. That's a marker. It's a step. You know that discipleship is happening. I think this is an important one. When a group member asks somebody else about a previous week's prayer request, that's an important marker. That's something to be celebrated. As a leader, that's something to pay attention to. Hey, something is happening in this group. We're moving. We're taking steps. We're being transformed. Praying for stupid stuff, praying for real stuff. This is about how we engage in prayer. The way we engage in prayer, the intensity of it, the intentionality of it, is a marker of transformation. Number five, when we move from masking to confessing. Um, James 5.16 is a very interesting verse. It says, confess your sins to one another so that you will be healed. My concern is that those of us in the Protestant evangelical church get confessing to God for forgiveness. And we've done that. Done. Good. We're forgiven. But we're limping around as wounded people because we fail to confess to one another where healing is found. 
So we confess to God for forgiveness. We confess to one another for healing. There is something that is restorative and reconciling when we confess to one another. About 10 years ago, one of our small group leaders, after an event just like this, confessed to their small group leader, their coach, I guess it was, that they wrestled with same-sex attraction, never told a soul. They were wrestling with internet porn. They'd been wrestling with it since they were a teenager. And for years, they tried to do everything they possibly could to please God. To do all the right things. They came to church. They did every church thing imaginable. They had been baptized. They had sought an infilling of the Holy Spirit. They'd been on mission trips. They were leading groups. Could not break this cycle in their life. Finally confessed. He had confessed it to God over and over and over and over again for years. Finally confessed it to another person. And that's when the moment of healing began. Found himself involved in a group that helped men just like him wrestle through addictions and wrestle through brokenness. He was able to find healing. He was able to find restoration. Today, he is creating places for men to do the same thing. Today, he's a leader. He's a pastor at our church. Helping people find freedom from hurts and habits and hang-ups. And it all started with a moment of confessing that moved to a place of healing. We know that transformation is happening. We know that discipleship is happening when people begin to slowly take the masks off and begin confessing to one another. Now this is a really delicate thing to lead. Because we know if there's not an emotional um, maturity in our group, if there's not the right level of community, this can actually be very damaging. We've got to make sure that our group is able to bear the level of confession that's happening. And you as a leader set the bar for that. What is your level of transparency? What is your level of vulnerability? And I don't believe that the small group is the place to come in and dump all of your secret sins in front of everybody. Because that's not healthy either. But creating a place where people know that they matter, where they feel like they belong, and where they feel like it's a safe place to be who they are right where they are, and to find maybe one person that they can confess to. When people begin to do that, you know that disciples are being made. When people begin to slowly remove that mask, now again, it can be a slow process, and that's okay. But as a leader, you can set that bar. Number six, we know that disciples are being made. Community is happening when we move from telling stories to creating stories. You know, in the beginning of the small group experience, it's a lot about storytelling, right? Um, even in the way we introduce ourselves, this is who I am, this is where I'm from, this is what I do. And then, and then you tell stories in group. A question gets asked, and somebody tells a story from their experience, and then somebody else shares a story from their past and their background. But over time, the group will move from just telling stories to creating stories of their own. And, and this is the culture question. This is when we move from, from telling stories to creating stories, we're creating a culture in our group. And when culture begins to get created in our groups, we know that transformation is happening. Because that's where community is happening. That's where change is happening. 
When we look at the book of Acts, it's just story after story after story, amazing story of the community of God experiencing things together, making things happen together. I read once that a leader is actually the person that just has the most stories. When you're the one that can tell the most stories, then you're the leader. What stories are emerging from the groups that we're leading? Because when we move from a group of people that just come together and share stories with one another to a group that is creating stories collectively together, we know transformation is happening. I've got Jody Otto is with me today. Jody works on my team. Um, we get to do crazy ministry together. We created some stories on the way here. Um, but she has led for the past couple years a volleyball group. Now, a lot of people ask, how in the world is volleyball a small group? You should hear the stories that come out of that group. People that are far from God, not a part of church, but are interested in volleyball, come to that group. And then while they're in that group, they hear other people's stories of faith. And then they're invited into those stories, and then they find faith on their own. It's so cool talking about people like Sarah, who comes to the volleyball group, recently got baptized. Her life has been changed. All of a sudden, the volleyball group is the one we tend to tell the most stories about at NCC. Because it's a group that has moved from just being people that share stories with one another to people that create stories together. You know that when your group has inside jokes, that that transformation is happening. When people begin a sentence with, hey, remember the time? Then you know that you're creating stories. The next one kind of goes along with it, number seven, when you move from snacking to feasting. It's a little bit metaphorical. But I know groups that have full-on feasts when they come together on Tuesday nights. Now, the food itself is not really what I'm talking about, but I'm talking about the level of fun that you're having as a group. You know that you're creating culture. You know that you're creating a community. When you move from just kind of snacking with one another to extravagant feasting with one another, you're enjoying life together. You're coming to the table of God and enjoying everything that he's got for us. You know that when, you, when we read Acts 2, the story of kind of the early church coming together, food is mentioned twice in there. Um, Jesus, uh, you know, did his first miracle at a wedding. Jesus invites Zacchaeus to have lunch with him. He reveals who he is post-resurrection to a couple at the dinner table. Jesus was accused of hanging out with the wrong crowd. Jesus clearly knew how to have fun. When we learn how to have fun with one another, we know that that's a marker of transformation. Now, I know that doesn't sound very spiritual. It, it doesn't sound like a spiritual discipline. But I believe in a theology of fun that actually is a marker of transformation. It helps us know that we're making disciples. I, one of my favorite passages is in Nehemiah 8. This is after the, the exiles have returned to Jerusalem after being um, in, in Babylon for 70 years. The, the, the temple has been rebuilt. The wall has been rebuilt around Jerusalem. And Ezra and the leaders stand up to read the scripture, to read the law for six hours. And this is what we read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people, said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. 
and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. This was an historic day for the people of God, and the scripture is being read out loud for the first time in decades. And the people are weeping over this dramatic moment. And then Nehemiah and Ezra get up and say, guys, this is a day for celebrating. There are times for mourning. This is a time for celebration. Does your group celebrate together? Do they celebrate one another? Are we moving from just snacking on the goodness of God to feasting on the goodness of God? When people eat a meal together, I think that's a marker. As a group, when you celebrate communion together, it's a marker. There's movement. There's change happening. Finally, when we move from a mindset of us or no more, to make disciples, we know that change is happening. There's a tendency for groups to want to stay together in isolation because we've created a safe place. We all know each other. We all know, all love each other. And if anybody else comes in, it's just going to wreck everything. But I believe that the church exists for the people who aren't a part of it. And our groups need to have hearts that are turned out for people that need community. When our hearts as groups are turned away from, not away from us and away from ourselves, but away from our own sense of security and convenience, and our hearts turn towards, hey, how can we as a group serve the church? How can we as a group serve our community? How can we as a group serve the world? How can we be open to people that need to find the same things that this group provided for us? I know this church talks about touching the world. Your group has the potential to do that. And when the people in your group catch a vision for that and realize that, yeah, we're not going to be consumers. We're going to be contributors, not just to this group, but to the kingdom work that's happening in the world. Then you know discipleship is happening. It's a marker of growth. When your group decides collectively, let's get involved in something bigger than ourselves, you know discipleship is happening. When you do a service project together, when you find a way to create community for other people to connect, if you go on a mission trip together as a group, when you serve your neighborhood, when you move from us more, no more, to go make disciples, then you know discipleship is happening. It's a marker of transformation. One of my favorite places in scripture, along with Nehemiah 8, is Romans chapter 16. Now, most of Romans I find very difficult to understand. It's very confusing. It's very layered. It's very textured. Actually, the older I get, the harder time I have with it. I'm very grateful that Peter actually said in Scripture that Paul's writings were hard to understand because that makes me feel a lot better. But what I love about Romans, and Romans is like the most left-brain academic book in the whole Bible. It's, it's, it's Paul systematically laying out his faith. It's the closest thing we have to a systematic theology in all of Scripture. Paul is saying, this is what I believe about Jesus. This is why I believe it. This is the gospel message. And he comes to the end of that very academic, very left-brain book. And in Romans 16, he just lists names. 
disdain. Rufus, Erastus, Justus, Aristarchus, Priscilla, Aquila, Phoebe, Justus, and on and on it goes. About three dozen names. It's as though Paul is saying, I can't even, I can't even develop my theology in a vacuum. These were the names of the people that had believed in him and traveled with him and funded him and gone to prison with him and discipled him and prayed for him. Paul's saying, I've come to the end of my journey of faith. I'm coming to the end of telling my story of faith. I'm coming to the end of my statement of faith, and I'm just going to let the credits roll. It's what I call the Roman 16 list. Now, it... At the beginning of the night, I gave you some of the names of my Roman 16 list. Roy Schneider and Marty Pulliam and Mary Waite and Mary Horton and Barry Murphy and Stuart Hall. We all have a Roman 16 list. The people that had x-ray vision in our lives and made little investments along the way and had long obedience, they helped make these steps happen in our lives. When we come to the end of our lives, whose names will be on our Roman 16 list? But then the question I just want to leave with you tonight is, whose Romans 16 list would your name be on? Who can't share their story of faith without mentioning your name? Because you had x-ray vision, you saw something in them, they didn't see themselves, and you prophetically called that out. You made an intentional investment at a big day, at a big decision, in a big moment, or a big move. You are willing to disciple through the moment and through the season and maybe into life. And you are willing to say, you know what, my success won't be measured by anything other than how well I've discipled this third or fourth generation. And while I know that's an overwhelming, it seems like a huge, lofty goal, it begins with just looking at steps. Okay, all right, guys, we're doing good. We're moving from consumer contributed. We're moving from talking about facts, talking about opinions, to talking about our passions. We're, we're moving from learning about the Bible to living out the Bible. And we're moving from praying for stupid stuff to praying for real stuff. We're moving from snacking to feasting. We're, we're moving from telling stories to creating stories. And we're moving from an attitude of us for no more to let's go out and make a difference in the world. Celebrate every small step along the way. And at the end of it, think we'll face some disciples. Let me, let me just pray for us tonight, and then I, I know Pastor Stan's going to come up. God, thank you so much for this group. I thank you for these leaders. I thank you for what they do. I thank you for the sacrifices of time that they make. I thank you for their hospitality. I thank you for their leadership. I thank you that they are willing to go the extra mile that they're willing to be a part of the work that you're doing. I pray your blessing on them tonight. God, I pray that you would bless them in every way imaginable. I pray that your favor would be on them, that they would sense your presence in their life, your blessing on their life, and your favor shining down on them. God, I pray that tonight, as, as they're just thinking about their groups, that maybe there's just one or two things that have been mentioned that they can grab onto and say, okay, we're going to try this this week. We're going to try to take a step in this direction. God, I pray that they would be encouraged. It can be discouraging sometimes to realize that in small group ministry, it feels like 
two steps forward and three steps sideways and four steps backwards. And I, I pray that they would be encouraged by every little step that they see their group taking. God, I pray that you would just strengthen them. I pray that they would be filled with joy. And I pray that you would cause disciples to explode out of these groups to change the city, to change this community, to eventually change the world around us. In Jesus' name.